a dose of deception with the queens of queens, Shannon and Emily. In our podcast, we'll be discussing murders, missing persons cases, mysteries, and a whole lot of conspiracy theories. So stay tuned for the wild ride. Hey queens, welcome back to Dose of Deception. For this episode, we're going to have a little bit of a Halloween-themed episode, so we're very excited for this week. Before we get into it, like usual, I just want to shout out our social media accounts. Our Instagram is at Dose of Deception. We also have a Facebook group that is also at Dose of Deception. In case you're a new listener, we just want to tell you the premise of our show. Each week for the first half of the episode, Emily comes in and talks about a missing person case, a murder mystery case, and in the second half of the episode, I come in with a conspiracy theory that we talk about. So, Emily, what's our Halloween case for this week? Yeah, so Halloween, you know, the best holiday. <laughs> That's a wrong opinion, but sure, we'll keep going. What's the best holiday? Christmas. Okay, it's like a tie for me. It depends on the mood, you know? Yeah, but Christmas is like presents. That's true. <laughs> you have no work. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so this week we're going to be talking about, I don't know if this is the actual official name for the guy, Okay. but I'm going to say okay. <laughs> this is sure. his name. We're going to be talking about the Candyman Killer. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. So it's very <laughs> Halloween-y and I'm so excited to get into this. Okay. Now, the idea that the candy you get on Halloween is poison is so popular today, right? I feel like that never happens. No, I feel like but it never happens. We always talk about it as if it does. Yeah, because it's the fear that like people think. And I yeah. think it's because of this case. I mean, not mm-hmm. entirely. Obviously, it was before this. But yeah. I think that this case really kind of... Like, popularized it. Popularized it. Where yeah. people now are genuinely afraid this would happen. Yeah. All right. So, back in the day, people were a lot more lenient, I'd say. Um, however, this all changed probably around the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now why people are so fearful is because of social media. Mm-hmm. They didn't have it in the 70s, but I feel like it generally started changing. Like, the 50s, 60s, uh-huh. there was a bigger sense of community, I guess. Yeah. Where you kind of just trusted that nobody would hurt your kids. Yeah. I'd say it started changing around that time. Now, I think that a large part of this fear stems from a man named Ronald Clark O'Brien, better known as the Candy Man. <laughs> Got it. Ronald Clark O'Brien was born on October 19th, 1944, and he lived in Deer Park, Texas, alongside his wife, Dane, and their two kids, Timothy and Elizabeth. Now, Ronald was a stand-up guy on the surface. He seemed like the working man who was happy with his simple life, working and coming home to his family. He was an optician and also a deacon at the Second Baptist Church, so he was known in the community and was also known in the neighborhood by churchgoers because he also sang in the choir. Mm-hmm. So he was very, you know, community-oriented. Uh-huh. However, Ronald had a plagued mind behind the scenes. On October 31st, 1974, it started out as a normal Halloween day. Timothy and Elizabeth excitedly dressed up for Halloween. Um, and also, I was just thinking about this. While I was researching this, I, I got so excited because you know that feeling of Halloween, like when the air is cool and yeah. you're like dressing up and stuff? Yes. I miss that. Yeah, it's not going to happen. It's crazy. This week. <laughs> it's really crazy. I don't have a Halloween costume. I'm trying to convince my sister to have a Halloween costume with me. Mm-hmm. It hasn't worked yet. Yeah. I was trying to have her buy us a peanut butter and jelly costume that oh, I saw so for cute. $10. Yeah. She won't bite it. Yeah. It's really <laughs> sad, but I love how just everything feels more spooky on Halloween. Yes. And everything's cold. Even if it's hot out, it feels cold. Yeah. I love it. Anyway, it did start out as a normal Halloween. Ronald O'Brien took his two children trick-or-treating alongside their neighbor and his two children as well. During their walk around the neighborhood, the children excitedly ran from door to door, and at one point during the trip, after continuously ringing one of their neighbor's doorbells, um, 
the neighbor never came out. So they said maybe he's not home or he's just not answering. Mm -hmm. So the children, you know, their their minds were already past the situation, including um, the children of the neighbor. Uh So they all ran ahead. However, Ronald O'Brien stayed behind them. Now, when Ronald finally caught back up to the group, he gave his two children, Timothy and Elizabeth, as well as the other um, two children, one pixie stick each, claiming that the resident who did not answer the door earlier finally came out and handed Ronald the candy for the children. Okay. Sketch. A little weird. Yeah. Now, Ronald still had a fifth pixie stick as well, and he decided to give it to a young 10-year-old boy who was part of the church that he was the deacon at. Okay. So he knew this guy from, I guess, this little boy from, like, every week, I'm mm-hmm. assuming. So he gave him the last uh, and final pixie stick. Once they got home, the children were naturally excited to eat their candy before bed, and Ronald gave his son, Timothy, the pixie stick to eat. And mm-hmm. he said, you know, eat this, then we can go to bed. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? It seemed all normal. Yeah. Right off the bat, Timothy noticed the candy had a bitter flavor, which was odd since it is entirely made of sugar. Yeah. Upon swallowing the powdered candy, Timothy ran to the bathroom, where he began violently convulsing and throwing up. Ronald followed his son to the bathroom, and he just, you know, watched him as he threw up, like, took care of him, yeah. whatever. You know, did what fathers do. Now, unfortunately, Ronald did call for help, but Timothy died on the way to the hospital less than an hour after finishing the pixie stick. Mm. Uh-huh. Now, Timothy's death induced panic in the community, and the police received buckets of candy from parents, asking them to make sure their children's uh, candy was not laced or poisoned or anything. Yeah. Ronald O'Brien was regarded by the police and the community as a grieving father, who people felt terribly for. However, once Timothy's autopsy um, came back, Mm -hmm. it revealed that the pixie stick he consumed had an incredibly high dosage of potassium cyanide. (laughs) I don't know what that is. (laughs) Is that like poison? Yeah, it's the... um, I know potassium's in a banana. That's really all I know. know. Yeah, it's just cyanide poisoning. Got it. Yeah, I know what that is. I've heard of that before. (laughs) So luckily, the other four pixie stick... Sticks. (laughs) Sticks. <laughs> who were in the possession of Timothy's sister, uh, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. their neighbor's two children, and the 10-year-old boy from the church, were safely recovered by police before anyone ate them. Good. The scariest part is that the little boy who was given the, f- the fifth p- pixie stick was found by his parents in his bed sleeping, and he was holding the unopened candy in his hand. How scary mm. is that? Uh, he was about to eat the candy, but luckily he had trouble opening the wrapper, and he fell asleep holding it. Good. Isn't that terrifying? Yeah. Especially if you were the parent, you just saw it, and, uh-huh. and you didn't know, and he was sleeping. Yeah, so you don't even know if it's open, you don't know if he yeah. ate it. That'd be terrifying. Yeah. So, police confirmed that each pixie stick contains enough cyanide poisoning to kill two to four adults. So it was some Wild. pretty serious, yeah, stuff. Mm. Police immediately became suspicious of Ronald O'Brien, who changed his initial story, which claimed that the neighbor who didn't open the door gave him the pixie stick. Now he was claiming that he didn't remember where they came from. Why did he change his story? Right? Just stick with it. I mean, I'm not trying to have him not get caught, but that doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. I guess because he figured if, like, the, um, the neighbor and the, you know, the father who was trick-or-treating with Mm -hmm. him, he would be like, oh, it was this house that didn't answer, so they would question that guy, you know what I mean? So I guess he figured, oh, let me just pretend, let me make it more vague so they yeah. don't know. The father of the two children who trick-or-treated with Timothy and Elizabeth told police that the group only went trick-or-treating on two streets because it was raining out. So the fact that Ronald claimed he did not remember where the candy came from was definitely a red flag for police. Yeah. Um, considering that he came back with it. It was handed to him. Yeah. Yeah. You would remember which house you were by yourself with. Exactly. Yeah. The house Ronald's claim gave him the candy belonged to a man named Corny Melvin, who police quickly learned worked until 11 p.m. on Halloween night. 
And now, after about 200 people accounted for Melvin's alibi, police ruled him out as a suspect. How many people accounted for 200. I'm like, where did you work? insane. Yeah. So, 200 people did that. So, obviously, police... um, Yeah, he's fine. ...became so suspicious of Ronald after that. Now, when looking into Ronald's personal life, authorities learned that he was severely in debt. And translating finances from 1974 to today's terms, Mm -hmm. he would have been over half a million dollars in debt. Like, for this time. Yeah. That's Which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of money. Um, Ronald was also fired from almost every job he had had in the past decade. So mm. he had gone through 21 jobs. Yeah. That's, like, insane. <laughs> 21 jobs? 21 jobs in 10 years. That's great. I yeah. mean, that's at some point you're the problem. for <laughs> <laughs> yeah, real. So right at the time of Timothy's death, Ronald was about to lose his car and a family home was being foreclosed on because Ronald could not keep up with any of the payments and the wife couldn't either. So even more suspiciously, Ronald had taken out life insurance policies on Elizabeth and Timothy Mm -hmm. uh, only a few months before their mysterious death or Timothy's death. Uh, He had taken out what would have been considered in today's terms, $50,000 life insurance policies on each of the kids. And just one month before Timothy's death, Ronald had taken out another $20,000 policy on both kids. So clearly, it wasn't looking like a coincidence after that. Not even 24 hours uh, after Timothy's death, Ronald called the insurance company asking when he could start collecting the money. (laughs) Oh my god, make it a little more obvious. Right? Like, who does that? Even if you're in debt. I don't care how in debt you are. Yeah. That's your kid. I know. Ugh. Um, which means he was definitely playing. How sad is that? Like, he probably helped them pick out their outfits and everything. Like, and he was know, playing this Knowing whole time. that that was going to happen. Yeah, it's really sick. Psycho. Now, Ronald's wife was obviously shocked, and she had no clue that her husband has- had been planning this. Mm. So, yeah. No, like, she was really shocked, which is yeah. so sad. Um, police concluded that Ronald's main goal was to kill his two children because of the severe debt, and he gave the other tr- three children the poisonous candy to make it look more natural and random. So he was willing to kill random yeah. kids, too, on top of that. He was willing to kill five of them. Wow. um, Just to make it look like it was done by a stranger. Mm -hmm. Not even a week after Timothy's death, on November 5th, 1974, Ronald was arrested for his murder. They were unable to figure out where exactly Ronald got the poison from. Mm. However, his suspicious activity leading up to the incident was enough for an arrest. Yeah. Friends of the O'Briens testified that during the month leading up to Timothy's death, Ronald expressed an unusual interest in cyanide poisoning and spoke of how powerful it is and how easily it can kill someone. So I guess in hindsight, they were probably like, why are you talking about them? It's yeah. weird. Um, but after hearing that, they like told police. Yeah. And a chemist who was also friends with Ronald testified about him and about how in the summer of 1973, he asked how much cyanide would be lethal and how a person can create or purchase it. Yeah. Since this conversation occurred over a year before Timothy's murder, the chemist just thought Ronald might have been curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he did not really think too much about it until obviously he connected the dots that's a and realized i mean that means that he had been that, planning yeah. that for over a year over a year he was planning that isn't that crazy that's crazy and i mean the money that he would have received from the life insurance is not even enough not to enough yeah put him over and out of debt i know now siblings of dane um who's ronald's wife mm-hmm. testified about how during timothy's funeral Ronald was not behaving like a grieving father, but instead he was telling them about the nice vacation he was planning to take with the money he was going to get. Which is insane, because if you're in debt, wouldn't you be, like, paying that off anyway? Yeah. Why is he taking the vacation? You're going to brag about the life insurance (laughs) money that you're getting from your son's death at your son's funeral? Yeah. Crazy. 
Now, during the trial, Ryle quickly was given the nickname The Candyman by the public and the media. On June 3rd, 1975, it only took the jury 46 minutes to find Ronald guilty of one count of murder and four counts of attempted murder. It only took them 45 minutes. 46 minutes. (laughs) That's crazy. And it only took another 71 minutes for the jury to decide to give Ronald a death penalty. Wild. Yeah, wild. Only 71 minutes. Mm. Ain't that crazy? Yeah. That's so short. Is he... Did he get killed already? Yeah, he did. So... The public was clearly outraged by this, obviously. They're going to give him the death penalty so quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And his poor wife, who had no clue what a monster her husband was, filed for divorce and took her daughter, Elizabeth, to live with her. So luckily, they got out of the situation. Good. Um, Ronald O'Brien had a rough time in prison before his death. The inmates hated him, and he had zero friends there. And the inmates felt so passionately about his case that they planned a demonstration on the day of his execution. Wow. Yeah. This was, like, a big thing. Yeah. I want to ask my mom about it. Or, like, people who were just alive during that time, how, if it was actually a big thing, like, on the news and stuff. It probably was. Probably. After escaping execution multiple times, because his attorney was able, um, to keep getting it postponed, Mm -hmm. in hopes of, like, saving him. And, oh yeah, and they also, his first, um, execution date, I believe it was his first one, it Uh was planned for October 31st, 1982, to, like, have an anniversary thing about it. Wow. Um, however, he was able to get out of that one. And they were trying to do it to celebrate, not celebrate, but, like, get justice on the 8th anniversary of, um, Timothy's death. Uh Uh-huh. However, he was officially put to death by lethal injection on March 31st, 1984, at midnight. Mm. Up until his dying day, Ronald maintained his innocence. His final words were, quote, I forgive all, and I do mean all, those who have been involved in my death. God bless you all, and may God's best blessings be always yours. I mean, mm. he was like a deacon, so I guess that's not weird. Yeah. I forgot he's like a religious. Yeah. But yeah, so he really maintained that he was innocent and that it was a stranger who did it, but obviously. Yeah, I mean, it definitely wasn't. Yeah. But, but I always wonder, like, do you think he genuinely thought... Obviously not at first, because he was planning it for so long, but after it happened... Because you know what? If you keep telling yourself lies, you can kind of start yes. to actually believe them. Yes. Do you think he did that? Or do you think he was just Probably, because he, he was planning it for so long. Yeah. So he had been convincing himself that it's an okay thing to do That's for crazy. that long. Yeah. For over a year. So this case definitely caused a divide. A lot of people were upset with how quickly they chose to give him the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So at his death, or like outside... Um, there was a bunch of anti-death penalty groups who gathered around and yeah. was, like, protesting it. And on top of that, there was also 300, um, people who stood outside and chanted trick-or-treat while throwing candy at the anti-death people. So it was, like, very divided. Wow. Yeah. Like, people either was on his, not on his side, necessarily, yeah. but were upset with it or not. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he was put to death, and he is now, like, to this day, he's buried in Texas, and so is his son, Timothy. Mm. Not together, but they're buried um, both in Texas. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So I have a couple questions. Yes. One, does he have a background of, I don't know, violence, behavior like that or anything like that? Not that I could find. Um, He seemed to be a very stand-up guy. He just lived... It's not... You know, he he lived with his wife and his kids for the whole... His whole life. So... No, nothing. And also the fact that his wife had absolutely no clue. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like you can kind of start seeing patterns, even if you're married yes. to someone. So no, I, he doesn't have any signs of violence or anything. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think maybe he wasn't the best person since he did go through 21 jobs in 10 years. Yes, definitely. So maybe there was like some <laughs> patterns there, but no, not like anything yeah. I could find. And the other thing that I was going to say that was interesting, because you said the protesters were outside. I like don't love the death penalty. I don't either. 
So I really don't. I was like, after they decided that super quickly, and like, don't get me wrong, I really do think that he did it. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I don't like anybody getting. I mean, I don't want to say anybody, but I most be ninety nine percent of cases. I don't agree with the death penalty. I don't either. That bothered me too when I was yeah. reading it. But I guess you know this is a couple decades ago now, and when it's a kid, people are going to be a lot more sensitive to it, understandably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was my other point that I was going to make. So it's interesting that they were doing that protest outside because yeah. that was the first thing I thought of when you said the death penalty. I was like, oof. Wait, is the death penalty still legal today? Yeah, there's still 28 states that still have it. That's too many. I don't like that. A hundred percent. That's way too many. It is. And also, I was thinking, um, a lot of times the, the death penalty is just because they don't want to financially um, support, like, all, financially house all the inmates A hundred percent. I mean, we can go into a whole ramble about how yeah. the justice system is locked up, but I definitely think that that's one of the reasons why prison systems still fight to keep that a thing. Hey queens, welcome back to my half of the episode. So for my half of the episode this week, we're going to be talking about James Dean and his car that he crashed in. I love James Dean. Yeah, so he's a really, really famous actor. If you don't know who James Dean is, I'm going to go into him a little bit, just so like, but you definitely know who he is. Yeah. So I'm going to be talking specifically about how the car that he died in and the car crash that he died in. That car may be cursed. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so, Wait, didn't the car get, like, destroyed? I've seen the pictures of it. Yes, the car was completely totaled yeah. at the accident, but some of the parts of it okay. were salvageable. Okay. So, James Dean, like I said, was a very famous actor from the early 1950s, and his most known role is that of Jim Stark in Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, he was known just as much as a cultural representation of teenage angst and the symbol for the American youth in the 50s, just as much as he was an actor. He was really just a symbol for the young people during that time. When was he born again? Do you know? He was, well, if we can do the math on it. <laughs> oh, <God>. okay. <laughs> he died in 1955, and he was 24 when he died. <laughs> so, 1931? So, 1931. Yeah. Yes. Right? Correct. Okay. So that's when he was oh, born. Oh, okay. Perfect. 1931. He was only 24 when he died. He looked so much older to me. He was only when he died, yes. He looked older to me. Yeah. And but everybody only... back in the day looked older to me. Agreed, 100%. Yeah. And he had only really just started his career at that point, especially Damn. in film. Because, He's a baby. Yeah, and if you think about it, like I said, his most famous work was from the early 1950s. That's when he was the most popular, and he mm-hmm. died in 1955. So really, he died at the height of his popularity. Damn. He really was a baby, though. Mm-hmm. He was only 24. Damn. So before his death, Dean became a huge fan of auto racing and participated in auto racing often. Now, the car that he got into his fatal accident in was a Porsche 550 Spider, a new car that he had just got in the hopes of racing it. So before I get into the crash, there's one interesting story about the car itself. So one week before the crash, on September 23rd, 1955, Alec Guinness, who's a really famous actor, most people know him from either Lawrence of Arabia, and he was also Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars films. So he ended up having dinner with James Dean on September 23rd. Before they went inside to the restaurant, Dean showed off his new car to Alex, and Alex replied, and I quote, this is what he said, he said word for word in an interview in the 70s that he gave. If you get into that car at all, it's now Thursday, 10 o'clock at night, and by 10 o'clock at night next Thursday, you'll be dead if you get into that car. 
Why? Why and he was that? right because the following Thursday was the day that James Dean died. That's weird. He said that he said like when he was having that conversation with Dean in the interview, Alex said that it was just he felt compelled to say that. He said Why? it was almost like someone else was taking over and he felt like he needed to say that. That's creepy. Very spooky. And it's weird that it was like exactly the Thursday too that he said Yes. It. And he literally said exactly one week from now. That's it's now weird. Thursday, ten o'clock by ten o'clock next Thursday. And that next Thursday was the day that he died. That's creepy. And you can tell that Alec Guinness is upset by it and he this isn't the only time that he spoke of it, but you can tell that it's continuously bothered him since then. Can you see that um interview was it recorded yes oh shit yeah it was a bbc interview i believe and it was from 77 okay so you could tell he died in 55 and in 77 alec was still talking about it because i'm sure that's super upsetting yeah so now the car accident itself is not suspicious in any particular way it was found that there was no criminal activity attached to it it was just merely a car accident uh although he had been pulled over for speeding earlier in the night Reports show that he was only driving 55 miles per hour at the time of the crash. So it's not like he was auto racing okay. when he got into the crash. Because I always heard or like I thought he was going like 100. Yeah. So at the time, 55 would have been over the speed limit. And he had actually been pulled over earlier in the night yeah. for speeding. However, at the time of the crash, he was only going 55. Was he drunk or anything? I don't believe it was. I, d- I didn't see evidence okay. of it that he was. And also, it's kind of crazy because didn't he do like um, a seatbelt or like drunk driving i can't remember but like a car safety commercial like a week maybe i don't know actually i'm pretty i I saw it on youtube he like did a commercial for like car safety like wear your seatbelt don't drink i don't know if it was for that exactly but i know it was for car safety but he had done Um, stuff like that before he did it like very like maybe like a week before he died Mm. i might be making up the date but it was very soon before he died before he died so weird yeah i mean there's kind of a lot of foreshadowing for this happening before it happened so yeah the he was pronounced dead at the scene of the crash. Uh, the crash was basically a head-on crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was basically an on-impact that he died. Uh, so he didn't suffer? Yeah, no. Okay. It was. I think it was a broken neck was what it was officially pronounced in the end of it. Uh. So, but like I said, there was no criminal intent. And it wasn't like he was driving completely <laughs> recklessly. Now... The car itself is the real source of the mystery, and it has been labeled as cursed since the accident. So, the car was nicknamed Little Bastard by Bill Hickman, who was a stunt driver and a close friend of Dean, who also happened to be in the car behind Dean when the accident happened. Okay. So, Bill was with Dean when it happened. He was the first one on the scene. Uh, He has... I don't know if it's he has said or the police have said, but he... Dean basically died in Bill's arms, basically. Oh, damn. Yeah. Wait, so he, he hit another car, was it? Yes. Did they die? No, the other car did not die. Uh, it did. I don't remember the guy, the guy's that name that he got into the crash with, but it definitely haunted him, and he didn't stay in the media, so you could tell it wasn't something yeah. that he was really looking to... Talk about? Still reflect yeah. on. I think it was that he had done one interview total since the crash, so I definitely do feel bad for that guy Me because it, it, it wasn't really his fault the crash. So at least he's alive though. Or yeah, he, he didn't die. During yes. That. Yeah, because it was also more of Dean's car after the head-on impact. It like flipped a couple of times, so there was a lot more damage done to his car than the person that he got in the accident with. Okay. So, like I said, the car's nickname was Little Bastard. It was deemed wrecked at the scene as the car after being hit, like I said, flipped over several times. 
Now, it is worth noting that not all of these incidents that I'm going to talk about are 100% confirmed. The person that most of these stories come from is George Barris, who was the person that ended up with most of the car after the crash. Okay. So some have said that it might be a little embellished because he did write books about it. So it might be a little bit of media. However, most of these can be traced back as being factual. Okay. Okay. So after being stripped of all of its useful parts, the car was sold to George Barris, who is the man that originally customized the car for Dean and was very famous for oh, so customizing he, cars. He knew him before, kind of? Yes. It wasn't just a random person like that? No, him. he was the one that had customized the car for him in the first place. So, after buying it for a rumored mere twenty, no, $2,500, that's all he bought the car for. Well, wait, what year is it? It's probably like 55. the equivalent of like... Probably know. a lot more. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but still, that's looking insane. back on just that number, getting it for $2,500, that's wish. pretty good. So, <laughs> after he received it, the car slipped off of a trailer while it was in transport, and it broke the leg of Barris's mechanic. <laughs> Barris then sold the engine to Troy McHenry and William Estrid, also auto drivers. And McHenry... After they were put the car parts into their respective cars, the two of them were racing each other. Both of them had parts of James Dean's car in their car. McHenry ended up hitting a tree and dying instantly oh, during that race. Uh, William was seriously injured when his car suddenly locked up and rolled over while going into a turn. Damn. Yes. <laughs> That's really creepy. So, both of those cars did have using parts of the little bastard car. Yeah. So, also, two tires that Barris had sold off of the car blew out in a new car that it was in and caused this new car's <laughs> owner to steer off the road. Did they die? Everybody no, they did not die. Okay. But they did completely swerve off the road after, incidentally, the two tires that were sold from Jane Dean's mm-hmm. car, those are the two that blew out. So. <laughs> also... Because this car, at that point, had already had cultural significance, even before it became rumored cursed, just because it was James Dean's car, oftentimes people used to try to steal the parts of the car. So one time, while a couple of thieves were trying to steal from Barris, one of the thieves' arms was torn off while trying... Well, torn, not torn off. Let me not say torn off. Torn open. Okay. I was going to say. <laughs> torn off. open while he was trying to take the steering wheel out of the car. While another thief was injured while he was trying to remove one of the seats. <laughs> so, even if you're trying to just steal the car, you're still susceptible to its curse. That's crazy. Now... Barris, obviously, a little spooked by all of this. <laughs> so he was kind of trying to not do anything with the car anymore. Yeah, he just wanted to get rid not well, get rid of it, yeah, but just put it... Was not trying to sell any more parts yeah. away. Because <laughs> clearly it was not going well for anyone that he did this to. Hi- California Highway Patrol was able to convince Barris to use the car in basically safety demonstrations to promote highway safety, using your seatbelt, things like that. So Barris basically borrowed or rented the car to the California Highway Patrol to kind of go around California and show the safety. So in one of the first exhibits, the car was being held in a garage 
that garage ended up going on fire (laughs) (laughs) in another one of the exhibits at a high school the car was in an auditorium it fell off of the display that it was on and ended up breaking the hip of a student that was nearby wow yeah (laughs) so that is just a couple of the many many instances of this happening so like i prefaced it with some people have claimed that barris might have exaggerated the extent of some of the incidents uh Some people think that the fire incident in the garage, that it was only a minor fire, just different things like that. However, most of these incidents do have either police reports or things backing it up. Now, the car itself is believed to have been disappeared since 1960. So Barris was the last legal owner of the body of the car itself. And he claims that while it was being transported from Florida to California, that it was being transported in a box car and that it was empty when it arrived in California. Hmm. So, so they don't know what happened to it? So right now, no one knows where the body of the car actually is. Hmm. Some people have claimed that Barris only used that because the stories that he had said and kind of the show of it being around with the California patrol yeah. officers had started to die down in popularity so he might have made it disappear in the hopes mm. that it kind of raised interest again however there is a million dollar reward that has been given out to someone that can Damn, legally give dollars? back possession of it yes a million dollars there have been people that have come out and said that they know where where it is however they in order to get the million dollar reward, basically you need to be able to give them physically the entire car. However, some people just have tips for it and they like huh. don't want to give the tips if they're not going to get part of the reward and all that kind of stuff. So there has been a couple of instances of, oh, it may be here, it may be here. But as of right now, there's no for sure That's crazy. location for the car itself. That's crazy. I didn't know that part. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Yeah. So I think it's, I don't know if it's cursed, but the odds of all of those things happening to the same parts of the car over and over and over and over again is insane to me yeah all of the pre-stuff to his death is insane to me so it's just a lot of crazy coincidences in a row like that where do you think it is what would your guess be (laughs) i think that somebody probably stole it out of the box car yeah and somebody has it hidden somewhere and they might have sold whatever they could of it also, maybe somebody could have stolen it and not realized that it was his, and they didn't realize how much money they could have gotten out of, like, holding that thing for ransom. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just, at this point, too, I think probably the people that initially stole it might either have died or not have it anymore. So people that might have it might not even yeah, realize that even it's his know. car. They could just think that, oh, my dad or whatever stole a car or had this car in the house. They don't know what it is. That's crazy. So I think it's just sitting out there somewhere and it's probably in an obvious spot or hidden somewhere where it can be found. It's just that nobody's put in the right tip in or they, or they've put in a tip and it just can't be located for or taken for legal reasons. All right. And that's all we have for you this week, folks. Catch us every week for Freaky Friday with the Queens of Queens. Bye, Queens.